This morning, just like we did in May, we met here in May, on May 30th, we spent a little bit of time in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do that again this morning, the very end of Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you have your phone with you, a digital way to access that, feel free to follow along. I'll read those verses to you, like I typically do, so if you want to just wait. Uh, I think that Matthew 5, 6, and 7, probably more than any other passages in the Bible, deserve to be studied outside, because that's where they happened, just like this except multiplied by probably 50 or 100 more people, or times as many people as we have today with us. Just on the side of a mountain, Jesus either at the bottom of the mountain with people scattered above him, sort of like we are arranged today, or maybe the inverse, Jesus up high, speaking down over the people. But it was messy, it was sweaty, it was dusty, it was loud. The people were very hungry. We know that because shortly after Jesus finishes this sermon, they get uneasy, they're upset that there's not lunch served. So we try to think ahead, learn a lesson from scripture. We do have lunch for you today when we're done. Um, But before we jump into the scriptures, I I just want to say two things quickly. One, if you don't typically attend True North, maybe you don't even know who we are. Maybe you were jogging through the park today and decided to just sit in on what's going on with this group of people. Uh, We are a church in Anchorage called True North Church, and uh, we really just want to, we want to know God. We want to make his name known to other people, and hopefully you've picked up on that. We're pretty simple in how we approach that. Um, But if, if you would like more information, or if you're a guest today, somebody invited you along, you don't typically attend True North, when I'm done speaking, we're going to sing one more song together in response to God response to his word. But I'm going to make my way back over to that uh, plastic table there between the light post and the tree. And we have a little, what we call a connect card, just a little kind of index card that we'd love to get some information from you about, just so we can reach out, get to know you, answer questions that you may have. Uh, If you have a really positive experience, you can think of that as a way to get connected and take the next steps. If you have a really negative experience, uh, there's not a lot of room to write on the card, but you're welcome to write whatever you want and let us know, and we'll take that into account as well. So, The Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the greater context of the scripture that we're going to hear Jesus speak today. And it's Jesus doing what he's best at. It's him being in some ways subversive to the religious culture that around him. People expected, I think, Jesus to eventually fall in line with the greater religious movement of the Jewish people, and he just never did it. He never quite got in step with what the religious leaders of the day wanted from him. Instead, he continued to push on people's kind of polite prejudices, the ways that they had decided together that they could use the religion that God had established in the Old Testament to be judgmental and unkind and withholding and exclusive to other people groups. Instead, Jesus is always communicating about the hearts of people, not their skin tone, not their family of origin, not the place that they grew up, but the state of who they are internally. And he's going to do the same thing today. He's going to speak to what is probably for some of us a sort of raw nerve, the way that we interact with people that we don't like. And maybe where you come from, you don't admit that, right? Christians don't admit that they don't like anybody. They just say, God bless you to your face and then bring you up in prayer requests at small group. And that's sort of how they communicate that they would like you to change. But Jesus has a different picture of prayer for people that we don't agree with, people that don't get along with us. So like the thousands of people gathered on the mountainside in Matthew 5, here we are, we're in the sun, we're baking a little bit. Some of us that know that winter is coming have sat over here to absorb the sunlight. Those of us who maybe aren't quite there are sitting in the shade and getting a little bit of cool, and I'm sure the same was true for Jesus' audience that afternoon. So hear Jesus' words. He's speaking, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. He says to these people, you have heard that it was said that you should love your neighbor and that you should hate your enemy. But I say to you, I, Jesus, is speaking, I say to you, you should love your enemies, and more than that, pray for those who persecute you. Why? Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father, or children of your Father who is in heaven. For your Father in heaven makes his Son rise on the evil and the good. We are experiencing that right now. And he sends rain on both the just and the unjust. Now here's Jesus' question. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you work for the IRS, no offense today. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's just saying the people that are least liked among your people group, your culture, don't they take care of each other? We can't consider ourselves to be different from them if we're doing the bare minimum. Verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, only your family, how are you any different from other people? Even the Gentiles, those who live without God's law, they do the same. So you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that verse, verse 48, where Jesus says to be perfect as God is perfect, Jesus is speaking of all the previous points he's made prior to this point. Not just loving our enemies, but he speaks to lust, and he speaks to anger, and he speaks to violence, and he speaks to the way that we take care of one another, all in this passage. And he's saying, consider yourselves having an objective laid before you now. I don't think Jesus is saying be morally perfect, be flawless. The word in Greek more so means be complete, accomplish your objective as God your Father also accomplishes his objective. So here's the idea today, that Jesus wants more for you than justice. I would say he doesn't want less than that. We know God's vision for his kingdom on earth includes justice. He makes that very clear. Uh, he told his people to pursue justice. You may be familiar with Micah chapter 6, verse 8, sort of the patron Bible verse of every 16-year-old on their first mission trip, right? Um, or maybe you've seen it on Pinterest or tattooed on somebody's body. If you're not familiar, Mi Micah chapter 6 is a verse of corporate confession between a prophet, a person who speaks on behalf of God and God's people. And Micah is condemning God's people for their failure to live the life that God has called them to. He's asking a question of God's people. How can you expect to have a relationship with God? When you've worked so hard as God's people to separate yourselves from him, you don't get to use God's name if there's not a relationship there to back it up. This is what Micah says. You may, uh, this verse may be familiar to you. Micah says, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So yes, justice is in God's recipe book for his people, but I think that you and I in 2021 are maybe living as if justice is a kind of gospel, that if we could right the wrongs of the world, if we could just punish all of the criminals, if we could just kill all the dictators, if we could lock up all the predators, then we might somehow usher in God's kingdom in a way that in practice, it looks like we believe Jesus is unable to do without our help. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus does care about the weak, he cares about the innocent. He cares about those who cannot defend themselves. But one of the paradigms of Jesus is that he doesn't have to attack a predator in order to protect a victim. In other words, and this may be a new idea for you, Jesus does not wield destruction and violence in order to solve destruction and violence. He wields a different weapon. Micah 6.8 is not really meant to be instructive. I think it's actually not aspirational. It's not really an example of God giving his people a blueprint. Micah 6.8, in context, is supposed to be embarrassing to God's people. Micah is condemning what should be an embarrassing lack of justice in their midst. He's calling out their hearts because he's saying, you have tried to buy God's favor. You have tried to work your way into God's presence by taking care of yourselves instead of thinking of other people. Matthew 5, what Jesus said on the mountainside is the people baked in the sun. That is the blueprint. Matthew 5 is Jesus clarifying and illuminating that he wants to disconnect our hearts from what we do and instead connect them to who we are. And before you get ahead of me, yes, Jesus does say that there are two things that we need to do. In verse 44, we should pray for people who we are hostile toward. We should pray for people who are hostile toward us. But the reason why matters. If you have God's word, look back at verse 45. If you don't, I'll read it to you again. Jesus says to do these things for this reason, so that you may be so that you may live as actively children of your Father who is in heaven. 
So this may be new for you, but your ability as a follower of Jesus to coexist with, to seek the good of the people who you hate and the people who hate you is actually a matter of your identity. It's not a matter of your good behavior or your strength of will. We do those things because we are children of our Father. Actively, we are living as he says we should. And I want to push just a little deeper here, okay? If you'll skip over the rest of verse 45, if you're looking at the scriptures, I want to read to you verse 46. Jesus gives us some actionable items here. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect. Be perfect. Love and greet each other and be perfect. The kind of prayer Jesus is describing is not a prayer that God will change your enemy's mind. That's not what Jesus is implying. When he says pray for your enemies, he's not just saying air all your grievances, grievances privately with God. He's communicating a prayer that leads to love. Jesus is not just encouraging us to spend more time complaining about our enemies, nor does he seem to accept or qualify prayers for their downfall or their destruction as the kind of prayers that reflect the identity of God the Father. Jesus says that the prayers we pray for those who we hate will produce love for them in us. I think Jesus' ultimate objective in telling us to pray for our enemies is probably to eliminate the presence of an enemy in our life, not to destroy the person, but to move them into the same camp that we are in, to bring them into God's family so that their lives can be changed. Praying for our enemies should lead us to greet them, according to Jesus' words, to be glad to see them. Is that a novel idea? Think of the person at your workplace where when, as soon as they step onto your floor or into your office or you see their truck drive up in the parking lot, your heart begins to beat faster, you get anxiety, you decide you're going to take your lunch break now so you don't have to see them, or if you're on your lunch break and they come in, you're going to end your lunch break early so you don't have to see them. Jesus' ideal picture of Christian living is that we would find a way, not because we're trying to be good, but because we understand how God has loved us, to greet those people, to wave them down when your paths cross in public. To meet them each day with a smile and warmth, warmth that extends mercy and compassion to them. Jesus wants more for us than our thin definition of justice. Jesus is not satisfied if we live a life that is obsessed with balancing the scales. That is not his concept of abundant living. And what is fair is not the primary concern for Jesus' followers. Otherwise, none of us should accept the mercy that God gives us, because it certainly isn't fair for God to choose to take our wrong onto himself and give us good that we've never earned, that we could never come close to. The justice of that exchange is that Jesus does take on what is wrong in our lives. He bears our burdens for us. And no, we cannot die for the salvation of the people around us, but we can, we can be patient with them. We can try to be kind. We can endure the frustration and the challenge of coexisting. We can endure when they verbally attack or denounce us because of what we believe or how we live differently from them. Jesus is primarily concerned with what is merciful, what is gracious, what is charitable. So what grounds do we have for this kind of living? Who can teach our souls to give this kind of spiritual amnesty to our enemies? Now we'll look at the rest of verse 45. This is Jesus' justification for demanding this kind of obedience from God the Father's children. He says, think of your father. Your father makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God does not seem to respect the borders that we create the way that we do. I don't know how many of you have hiked flat top. Probably most of you have at least thought about it before. But one of the things you can do from flat top is you can see the whole city. You can see as far as where we are right now. And you can see roads and neighborhoods and how the city is broken into different pieces. And what's amazing is if you're ever up there on a cloudy day and the sun breaks through, the sun does not seem to care where the road is. The sun does not seem to care which part of the cities are commercial and which are residential and which are poorer and which have more money. The sun seems to break through the clouds and hit where it wants. 
And to me, that is an example of the way that God's common grace, his willingness to endure sinners and love everybody, is impartial. And it's our example, Jesus says. It's not just a good thing for us to be thankful for. It demands a step in our lives if we are following Jesus in obedience. Jesus says that it's God the Father's character that drives the sun up in the morning. It's God the Father's character that sends rain to cool the earth and feed creation. You'll notice that Jesus' perspective is that God is not just passively observing a system that he set into motion. He takes responsibility for this. It's his identity to do that. And that is a lesson that the gospel of Jesus teaches us, that Jesus is merciful and he loves to give mercy to his enemies. So as we follow him, we find that that is our purpose in life as well. That's the answer to our existential questions. That is the kind of thing that made a thousand people step out of the city of Jerusalem and follow Jesus to a mountainside and bake in the hot sun. That's what led them to a man who could answer those questions was these deep and abiding wonders of who am I and what am I here for and what is my purpose? Jesus says at least a part of it is to be different toward your enemies than the world expects you to be. To love them in a way that is destabilizing to the dichotomy of everybody always defending themselves and attacking who they hate. Go against that. Disrupt that. Let's revolutionize that, I think is what Jesus' call here says. So if we can zoom back out again as we land the plane here, in the interest of reaching a conclusion, all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus communicating what abundant living looks like. Loving our enemy must be part of abundant living. Loving the person who, whose ideas threaten our future is only possible if we are overflowing with love. And so, church, this is the challenge to you, to ask yourself, what is the attitude of your relationships? Are you in relationships all about counting pennies and keeping receipts, if you know what I mean? The slightest wrong, you carry it, you hold it, you never forget, you never forgive. If that's true, then you're not going to run out of good reasons to hate people who've wronged you. That internal sense of justice will override the countercultural idea that Jesus is asking us to embody. But if you can love in a way that keeps no record of wrong, a reality that will never be yours if your soul is not connected to Jesus, but if you can do that, you'll find that many of the limiting factors in your life will go away. Many of your anxieties, many of your fears, many of the symptoms of you being stuck in a cage of your own unforgiveness, you can be set free from that by choosing to embrace the grace that God has given you, not to be fake and do it on your own, but to apply the mercy that God has already applied to you. And though we all retain our citizenship on earth, right? We're obviously not sitting in heaven. You're sweating. You're trying to wrangle your kids. Your stomach is rumbling. You're wishing you would have sat on that end in the shade. You will find as a follower of Jesus that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming and has come, that that is real. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said to be Christ-like is to enjoy a kind of heaven in your chest, in your heart is what he means. To follow Christ is to have heaven in here. To embody what it means to follow Christ is to have that. And, and that's the vision Jesus is casting. That's the blueprint. Justice redefined as loving and caring about and seeking the good of our enemies. Why? So that the borders of God's kingdom will extend across every man-made border, every fence, every wall that people have put up. The kingdom of God will go over those. So what do you do? Two things. You confess if you're still harboring a grudge, and then you repent to God. Be honest with yourself and ask him to change that in your life. So uh, Tyler's going to come back up and lead us in one more song as he does. I'd like you to pray with me. Again, if you need to close your eyes because the sun is too bright or keep them open to make sure your children stay alive, that is fine. God can hear your heart regardless of whether your eyes are open or closed. But I want to ask you if you would, as we pray now to Jesus and acknowledge him here with us, can you confess and repent of bitterness or grudges or unforgiveness that you have? I'm, I'm going to just go by example here. 
God, even this morning, getting ready to come to the park, there have been things that have gone wrong in my life, even with an extra couple of hours on my Sunday morning. You would think, God, I would expect that that would mean I would be more relaxed and more at ease and more able to prepare and take my time and be unhurried and focus on you, and the opposite has been true. I have found a way, God, in the chaos of my life to add 120 more minutes of negativity (laughs) between me and this time. And so I'm sorry for that, God. I'm sorry for the people whom I've slighted and wronged in the last 48 to 72 hours. I'm sorry for the ones whom I have not spoken to yet, God, for the hurt feelings I have harbored. Maybe it's been a couple of days. Certainly, God, there are people whom I'm working on forgiving from years ago as well. So we confess that we're imperfect. We confess that the vision that you cast is a vision for us. It's not a thing that we are fully living in now. And we repent of that, God. We repent of where we have allowed our hurt feelings to build walls between us and people who need you. And really people who need us because maybe we're as close to the embodiment as Christ, of Christ as they're going to know. So we pray today, God, for our enemies. We want to do what you've asked us to do. We pray for those whom we have been tempted to hate and those who maybe hate us. That you would bless their lives, God. That you would make not just the sun and the rain to fall upon them, but that your grace and mercy would change them. And that you would turn an enemy into a family member for us. Only you can do that. We can't make that happen. So God, if you would, just meet us here, teach us to follow you, give us peace, help us to understand that this is about you and not about us. We love you and we're thankful for this family that you've made us a part of in Anchorage. We pray in Jesus' name.